Well, good morning. So good to see you this morning and to be in the house of the Lord. What a good and gracious king. Don't we just long for good leadership in our country, in our companies? Well, we're going to have a good king forever and ever and ever. And so our longings will be satisfied one day. Uh, before we get into our time in the Word this morning, I want to share a couple of announcements. If you go out into the foyer this morning, you'll notice that there is a table with books on it that says the recommended reading list from your pastors. And I encourage you to go out and take a look. There's a hard copy of the list, but where you can find these books is on our church webpage and our church app. You can parade through the copies that are there, and if you say, I want to buy one, you can go straight to Amazon through the church app, and it'll bring you right there, and you can order it. And Brian and I have spent a lot of time thinking about what would be helpful in us growing in all different areas of the Christian life, different aspects. Uh, in recent months, the elders have been talking together as we've been studying uh, Acts chapter 20, how can we be teaching the whole counsel of God? Meaning not only just all things that are essential for us growing in the Christian life, but the entirety of the Bible, which is, which is our book, so we can better understand the message and the story. And so we've picked a number of books that will touch on a number of these different issues. And so the challenge is that um, readers are leaders, and leaders are readers. And if we're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be reading. And of course, this is our primary textbook. I get that. But God, the Holy Spirit, for 2,000 years has been working through his people, giving them insight and understanding so that we can have better understanding of this book. And so there's books out there that you'll find helpful. And so take a look. You know, we say don't judge a book by a cover. So don't prejudge any book. Just go take a look. And maybe the Lord's going to stir your heart to buy one or two. And here's the second challenge. You might say, but I just don't have time to read. So let me challenge that this morning. I bet if you looked at your calendar and you looked at your daily use of time, you could free up 15 minutes, right? And if you can free up 15 minutes a day to read, just 15 minutes, you'll read at least one full book a month, at least, probably more, which means by the time we have this conversation a year from now, all of you have been able to read 12 books at least, 15 minutes a day, okay? You can do it, and once you get into it, you'll find that this is a worthwhile routine for growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So take a look at the book list. If you have any questions about them, you can talk to Pastor Brian or talk to myself. The second thing is, we're in a little bit of a lull with some of our discipleship hour classes. John Remley is continuing with his, at least he will next week. But today we're all going to be having a picnic together. Uh, but there, we, we need some more classes, and so I will be starting a class the first week of June, and we're going to be going through a book by Dr. Alistair Begg called Pray Big. And it's a it's a short, little, accessible book. We're going to study the issue of prayer over the course of the summer. And so we'll, we'll read the chapter, we'll study it, we'll go deeper in biblical principles. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And I think we would all agree that, boy, I wish we could just grow more in our prayer life. And this will be an opportunity for us to do that as we gather together and pray. And so if you are interested in being in the class, let the church office know. Let me know, and I'll start ordering the books so that they're here for that first week. I don't see the screen on in the back there. Should we have the screen? Okay. There we go. We're ready to go. All right. Make sure your cell phones are turned off as we get ready to go. And good morning to those of you joining us online. It's good to have you with us this morning. 
we have the privilege of looking at a passage in Matthew chapter 14. So wherever you might be, we encourage you to open your Bible, as we do here, as we turn to that wonderful passage. Well, I begin with a question this morning. What is the meaning of courage? What does courage look like? How can we recognize true courage from just sinful bravado? Well, I want you to consider two very different statements. The first one was given by the late pastor Adrian Rogers, who tells about a man who bragged that he had cut off the tail of a man-eating lion using only his pocket knife. He sounded so brave until he was asked, well, why didn't you cut off the lion's head? And he said, well, somebody else had already done that. I want you to contrast that with a statement from Eddie Rickenbacker, who was a heroic pilot during World War I and was the longtime head of Eastern Airlines, who said this, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There could be no courage unless you're scared. In history and in life, we can tell the difference between courage and cowardice. And in the passage we're going to look at today, we will see the courage of John the Baptist, the prophet called by God to be the forerunner of the Lord. And that will be compared to the cowardice of Herod Antipas. So in this story that we're looking at in chapter 14 of the gospel according to Matthew, actually serves as a flashback to something that happened previously or earlier in the time of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at this flashback story today, we will see courage shown in the face of danger, especially courage that is shown in the presence of those who actually can bring physical harm. So that is an introduction as we get ready to look at what God has for us in Matthew 14. I invite you to stand one more time as we read God's word and the passage that we'll study today, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And the inerrant and holy and beautiful word of God says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This is the word of God. Receive it as a gift from God the Holy Spirit for its intended purposes. Please be seated. And let's pray. Our God and our Father, we have already sang this morning that you are a good and gracious king. That we stand amazed in the presence of our Savior, even Jesus the Nazarene. 
But we know, Father, that as we go forward, unless it is your Holy Spirit that is at work in us in these holy moments, that this will just be the passing of time. Father, we want it to be more than that. We want it to be an encounter with the living God through your word. And so would you be our teacher now? Would you guide us? Would you instruct us? Would you encourage us? Would you help us? Would you open our eyes? Would you cause our hearts to rejoice in you? As we pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Now the passage that we're going to look at this morning is is a little bit different, at least as far as how I'm going to present it, simply because it's, it's a story and we want to break it down and, and look at how the story comes about. And so I'm actually going to use a, a prelude and a postlude. A prelude, as you know, is just simply that, that in, an action that introduces the story. And so we begin with the prelude that talks about Jesus and John and Herod. And so our text begins in chapter 14, verse 1, which says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, last week in our time together in God's Word, we saw that it was Jesus who had been dishonored by his hometown. And we said that's a story of rejection. Well, today we see another story of rejection. John the Baptist, the one who God had used to announce the arrival of the Messiah, has already been, by this time that we get to this moment in the ministry of Jesus, he has already been dishonored, in fact, already been put to death, and now we're going to go back and visit the details of how that happened. So our text begins by talking about Herod the Tetrarch, who had heard about the works and the words of Jesus. Obviously, the reputation of Jesus was growing. Crowds come in here about what he has to say. They're watching what he has to do, and word would get out that he was performing many acts of mercy and power. Now, the Herod that is mentioned here is Herod Antipas. And we're going to spend a little bit of time getting to know the Herods this morning because they will come up several times in the Gospels and certainly they're mentioned in the book of Acts. But this Herod Antipas had two homes. One in Tiberias, which was on the Sea of Galilee, about eight miles south of Capernaum, which was the ministry headquarters for Jesus and his ministry in Galilee. So King Herod not king, Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, had a home in Galilee. He also had a home in Perea, which was the other part of the district that he led, and we will see that in due course. So here was Herod, who was the leader in Galilee during the great length of the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And so he would be the one who would be the most familiar with Jesus, the one who would have heard the most about his works and his words, his wonderings, his his teachings. And it was this Herod is the one before whom Jesus appeared at his trial when Pontius Pilate said, Herod is here, send him to Herod. It's this Herod that we're talking about, Herod Antipas, who questioned Jesus during his trials in his last week of his earthly ministry. So it may have taken a while, but Herod heard about the ministry of Jesus. And what he hears is disturbing to him. And his response is somewhat surprising to us because he says this is John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead. That's why he's doing these miraculous powers. And so as we look at the background of the story here, there's several things that will help us to understand what is going on. First, Herod recognizes that miraculous works are being done. 
And it was thought in those days that Jewish prophets would do some types of power, miraculous things. And so it's not uncommon that he would think, okay, prophet, power. But secondly, he confuses Jesus and John. If indeed this was John, Herod would be the most to be confused and surprised because he was the one that had had John killed. And so if he is back alive again, this would certainly be an incredible miracle. Thirdly, Herod is involved in superstition and misunderstanding. And I think he's experiencing a good deal of guilt because what he has done. He's bothered by a guilty conscience. He knows that he should not have put John the Baptist to death. But fourthly, he's also confused theologically. Why do I say that? Well, the Herods were Idumeans. That means they were Edomites. They had an Edomite background. Yes, they were partly Jewish, but they were partly Edomites. And they were in league with the Roman officials. So they wanted to be in league with Rome to keep power, to keep things under control. And as far as political parties, they were Sadducees, not Pharisees. Well, as you know, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so here, Herod, a Sadducee, part Edomite, part Israelite, but all politician, is still amazed and says that's why he's been raised from the dead. There's some theological confusion here. There's some mixture of superstition and culture and misunderstanding. Now, if we were to take the time and go over to Mark chapter 6, we would see that Herod had a very interesting relationship with John the Baptist. The account in Mark 6 tells us that he found John interesting. He liked listening to him and yet found him somewhat unnerving. He was curious and yet fearful of John. He didn't want to embrace John's message, but he didn't quite want to harm him either. And so he found it convenient to just leave him in prison. So I find it interesting then that when he hears the stories of what's going on with Jesus, he immediately thinks of John. It shows that John's still on his mind. He knows he shouldn't have done what he, what he did. He doesn't want to embrace that message, but he's dealing with a guilty conscience. And now he hears of this preacher who is performing miraculous signs and leading the people. And he doesn't think of Jesus, he thinks of John. So all that is a prelude to the story, which brings us then to our first major point this morning, which is the decadent parentage, the decadent heritage. And our text continues by saying, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful to you for you to have her. And so if the first two verses act as a prelude, now verse 3 begins this flashback that we're talking about that will carry us all the way to verse 12. And it brings us up to the current events in the life and the ministry of Jesus, but we have to go back and come forward. And we see that in movies and in books all the time. You get to a certain point, and then they flash back to explain some events that have happened to bring us up to the current situation. And so, in order for us to fully understand the flashback, I have to put on my historian's cap this morning, just for a minute, so we can look at who the Herods are. Because they're mentioned many times in the Gospels. They're mentioned many times in the book of Acts. And, you know, it's like going to a baseball game. You can't tell the players without a scorecard. So you need to know who the names are and what position they play. And then you can understand the baseball game. Well, it's the same thing with the Herods. We need to know, well, who and which and what and where of the, of the Herods family. So let's take first a look at the Herod family tree. The great patriarch of the Herods was Herod the Great. 
sometimes referred to as King Herod, who ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And this was the Herod that was in control when Jesus was born. He's the one that wanted to kill the Christ child, causing Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt. He was ruthless. He was politically astute. He would do whatever he could to stay in political power. He worked hard to manipulate the authorities in Rome to gain their favor, and he was a vassal of the Roman state. As we said, he was half Edomite, descendant of Esau. Therefore, he was not eligible to be in Jewish leadership, and yet here he called himself the king of the Jews. That is why then, when Jesus was born, and the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, when Jesus was a toddler at this point, and they arrive and say, we have come to see the one who was born king of the Jews. Because here you have the one who claims to be king of the Jews, but who got it through political machinations, and here comes these, these men announcing that there's one who's been born king of the Jews. And as any dictator who wants to stay in control knows, you've got to deal with the threat when it comes, and so that's why he gives the order to kill the Christ child. Well, when he died, his kingdom was then split among, his, among three of his sons. He had more than three, but among three of his sons, Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas. And we're going to focus this morning on Antipas because this is the one that is in this story. Antipas was given a territory of Galilee, which is in northern Israel on the western side of the Jordan River, and he was given Perea, which was on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and they were not connected. So he had a, a two-state, as it were, area that he ruled over that were not connected, which is why he found it helpful to have two homes over which he would rule, one in Tiberias, up near the Sea of Galilee, one near the Dead Sea on the Jordanian side. Sorry, spent 16 years in Jordan. They're still my people. On the Jordanian side of the Dead Sea. Well, as the saying goes, the apple doesn't far fall from, far from the tree. Antipas was ruthless like his father. But you see, he only had the title of Tetrarch. Tetrarch means a fourth. He was only given a fourth of the kingdom that his father had. And his two brothers were also, or two of his brothers were also given territories, but they were called ethnarchs. Now, what's the problem? Well, you see, a tetrarch was down here, and an ethnarch was one level above, and then their father had been the king, okay? So you can see the political organization that's going on here, and you're dealing with a bunch of ambitious and arrogant and ruthless men. He's not going to be really happy about being a tetrarch while his brothers are ethnarchs. And they all want to aspire to be like their father, the king. And so they would actually aspire and ins insist that they be called king. And so the word king even shows up in this passage. But that was not a title that had ever been given to them by the Roman authorities. That was just something that they insisted on being bullies, political bullies over their people. So, so far so good. We know who some of the Herods are and what their leaders are and who's ruling whom. And we're just looking at one son today, Herod Antipas. So now let's look a little bit of what we know about John the Baptist to bring us up to this point. And we're going to go through this very quickly. But we, we saw John the Baptist in chapter 4 of Matthew. Now in chapter 3, he announces in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
And then Jesus comes and he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River saying we must fulfill all righteousness, meaning Jesus, the Messiah, must identify with sinners so that he can be their savior. And then we're told in Matthew 4, verse 12, that John was put in prison. And that's all we're told at that time. In fact, we're told that when John was put in prison, Jesus withdrew. And it's at that point that his Galilean ministry began. We get to chapter 11. Jesus is continuing in his Galilean ministry. Now John is in prison, not in Galilee, but in Perea. And he hears about what's going on in Galilee, what Jesus is doing. And so he sends some, some disciples to Jesus and said, are you really the Messiah? If you're really the Messiah, why am I languishing in a Roman prison? And Jesus says, John, look at the signs. The blind see, the deaf hear. Do not be offended by me. Stay faithful to me even unto death, and you will receive a great reward. And then we left John. So John is, we're told John is in prison. Then we get a little visit from John, his, his visitors who come and visit Jesus while he's still in prison, and then we don't hear anything until we get to now this passage. Now, as I said, John was in prison in Perea when Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Jesus withdrew into Galilee not because he was afraid to die. He just knew it was not yet time to die. He knew when the time came that he would march into Jerusalem and he would die on behalf of sinners. But that day was not then. He had to fulfill his messianic ministry. He had to fulfill all the law and the prophets and all righteousness. So here you have the Herod family tree. Now we get to the Herod family tryst. Herod Antipas was married to Phasaelus, the, king, the daughter of King Herodotus IV. Now, why am I taking all this time? Because it adds more color to the story so we know why did people react the way they did. Who was King Herodotus? He was the king of the Nabataeans. Who were the Nabataeans? They were the neighbors of the Pereans. Who was over the Pereans? Herod Antipas. So this became a marriage of convenience for political peace. And they'd been married for 15 years. And then Herod Antipas goes off and visits Rome. And while he's there in Rome, he visits his brother Philip. But he doesn't just visit his brother Philip. He visits his wife Herodias. And they start a clandestine affair. And then they decide that they want each other. And so they go and divorce their current spouses so they can get married. So this, when King Eretus hears about it, he is so upset, he declares war against Herod Antipas. You have defamed me. You have defamed my daughter. My honor's at stake. It's time for war. So they have a war, and King Eretus wins. He wins some territory back from Herod Antipas. And it got so dangerous that Rome had to intervene to save its territory and push back King Eretus and his forces. So it's already bad enough. But then we add one more detail to the story. And that is Herodias, while she was married to Philip, had a daughter named Salome. Now we get that from the historian Josephus. It's not written in any of the gospel accounts. But as the Jewish historian Josephus writes about all these events, he fills in some of the details. So imagine now you're John the Baptist, and you're a good Jewish prophet. You know the law. You know the righteousness of God. You know why you've been sent. There are so many things wrong with this situation. 
First, there were two intentional divorces, neither of which had any foundation biblically whatsoever, where two spouses just desert their spouses to get married. Secondly, under Jewish law, women could not initiate divorce. But Herodias was in Rome. And under Roman law, anyone could initiate a divorce. So she initiated her divorce against Philip. That would rankle those who wanted respect for the Jewish law. Thirdly, Antipas and Herodias were cousins. More specifically, she was his half-niece. You, you, you feel the yuckiness that's just coming from this whole situation? And then fourthly, under Jewish law, there was a provision that would allow a brother to marry his brother's wife, but he had to be dead first. So they couldn't justify, well, I'm just marrying my brother's wife because he was still alive. And so this is violating all kind of principles under Jewish law, and this could not fail then to offend the sensitive conscience of the faithful Jew, especially one like John the Baptist. Okay, so we, we, we got the color now of what's going on in the background of what's happening here. And then we get to the Herod family troublemaker, who is John the Baptist. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And so John the Baptist with prophetic thunder is confronting them over this situation. And he's doing it publicly. And in the original language, the phrase had been saying is what's called the imperfect tense, the imperfect mood, meaning that it was ongoing. And so you can imagine that as John the Baptist is interacting with Herod Antipas and Herodias, he keeps reminding them, you claim some type of Jewish heritage. You want some type of Jewish privilege. You're doing everything that's against the Jewish law. And so he's confronting them. But then you can imagine that the political leaders are not real happy about being continually reminded of their peccadilloes and worse. Any student of human history will tell you that political leaders never like being called out for their misdeeds. And so this ongoing haranguing of John bothered them. But it seemed to, according to the account we have in Mark, it gives more color and detail, this bothered Herodias more than it did Herod. Herod really wanted John dead and really put pressure on Herod Antipas to put this loudmouth prophet to death. So we have a parallel here. We have John the Baptist, we have Herod Antipas, and we have Herodias. And it parallels a situation that we find during the time of the kings where we have Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. And just like the prophet of old who confronted the sinners of his age, so the prophet in the first century confronted the sinful leaders of their age, and it was in both cases Herodias and Jezebel that really wanted to put the prophet to death. And yet John shows courage. He shows divine courage. He walks in the pattern and examples of other prophets who had confronted leaders in their own day. Moses, who confronted Pharaoh again and again. We've already seen Elijah, who confronted Ahab and Jezebel. The prophet Isaiah, who confronted many kings in his lifetime. The prophet Daniel, who stood boldly before Nebuchadnezzar and other leaders. The prophet Amos, the prophet Amos, who cried out against Jeroboam II. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who stood firm in front of religious and political leaders, both Jewish and Roman. God gives his word. God inspires his word. We have his word. And God raises up people in every generation who will stand firm on his word and speak truth, as it were, to power. And I think if there's a crying need that we have today, it's for the church to once again gain its prophetic voice, to speak out against the evils that are just spreading abroad, whether in our own area, our own country, and around the world, as wickedness and as unrighteousness continues to advance and grow and invade every aspect of life. We need the spirit of John the Baptist, of Elijah, of the prophets of old to stand up and say, no, beware, this will only lead to destruction and disaster. Well, in response to this continual prophetic preaching, Herod has John arrested. And I said earlier, he had two homes. He has one in Tiberias, as I've said, on the Sea of Galilee. The second one he had in Perea, which is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, the eastern side of the Jordan River. It was down by the Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan. And there is an area down by the Dead Sea called Machaerus. And there's a cave. It was believed that John the Baptist was held and then killed. It was known to be one of the early prison cells of Herod. And nearby are the ruins of Herod's palace. My boys were in the Boy Scouts when we were in Jordan. We'd go on many treks, and there were several occasions where we trekked and walked on the ruins of King Herod or Herod Antipas along the Dead Sea and could see where these events happened. I, I love how the Word of God is so deeply rooted in history and how as we study history and study archaeology and dig up new remains and finds, it confirms and affirms what God has said in His Word. Well, with all that history and background, I know you didn't come for a history lesson this morning, but you got one, but now we're going to get back into the text and finish. Let's go to verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And we've already talked a little bit about what's going on in Mark 6, how Herod Antipas feared the people. He also feared John. He was intrigued by John. He didn't know what to make of John. He didn't really want to kill him, but he didn't want to let him go, and so he held him in prison for a long time until we get to the events of Matthew 14. As, as Charles Spurgeon said, Herod had enough conscience to scare him though not enough to change him. Oh, I wonder if we're not like that at times. We see the implication of God's truth. We see the implication of what it might have in our lives. And we know that maybe we should make some changes. We know that maybe we should make some improvements and get rid of some habits and confess some sins and do some things. But then we find reasons not to do so. Well, Herod finally does what his wife has been telling him to do and what he knows he needs to do is he, he puts him to death. Or he puts him in prison, not yet to death. He's trying to keep the peace. After all, he's a politician. He's trying to stay in power. So he slings John along in prison, but the plot now thickens. We go from the decadent parentage to the demented party. The demented party. Those in political and economic power, they like to often display their privileges. 
right? We see that their gaudiness, their wealth, they lavish it around. That's what the Herods were like. So briefly, we want to just look at what happened here with this party. So we begin with the day. And we have the short phrase here. It says, but when Herod's birthday came, I'm going to stop right there. Herod Antipas throws a birthday party for himself. But this was not common among Jews. In fact, they didn't recognize birthdays until much later. But the Romans did. So now we see where Herod's allegiances lie. Not to his supposed Jewish heritage, but to his own pleasures and passions and attachments to Rome. So we see the day, then we have the dance. And the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So the daughter's name Salome, which we see in Josephus, it was the daughter of Herodias, but not the daughter of Antipas. And the word that is used for daughter here is the Greek word Kerasian, which typically is translated as young daughter, usually referred to someone of a preteen or early adolescent age. 12 to 14 years old is generally how that term is used. So it shows the, the wickedness of this event that involves a preteen or early teen girl in the presence of adult men. She who should have still had a sense of innocence about her life, should have been protected, is now thrown into the mix of this lascivious adult activities. It was inappropriate, but it pleased, we are told, Herod. As the wine is poured and as Herod is full of wine and full of himself, he now makes boastful claims. It would have been good for him to have spent more time in the word of God from the Jews that he claimed to be part of where he would have seen verses like Proverbs 20. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. It is clear that drink often opens the reservoir of the heart. That's why bartenders often serve as counselors or therapists, but not always in a healthy way. And Herod proves this with his behavior here. Sinful behavior may be pleasing to men, but it is displeasing to a holy God. And as one commentator says, there's just something repulsive about a young princess performing before the crowd of drunken men. And it is his bravado and his boastful pride. Herod makes a boast with an oath. Whatever you want. This was a common way of saying, in fact, in Mark 6, but also in examples in the Old Testament, the king would say, up to half my kingdom. Meaning, whatever you want, I will give to you. And so in his foolishness, he makes an oath. It'll bring a heavy price to John, but it'll bring a heavy price to the soul of Herod Antipas as we look now at the decision. Prompted by her mother, she said, give to me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So we see a, a good example here. Perhaps it's still common among most uh, young girls. They go to their mother to ask for advice. And if we read the details of Mark 6 to complement what we see here in Matthew 14, this had been prearranged. It was pre-planned. Herodias would know the weaknesses of Herod, would know his tendencies. She had a hateful scorn for John the Baptist. She was looking for an example to strike. And now her opportunity had come. And so showing her blood vengeance, she asked for the unthinkable. Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. 
Give it to me here. This is the timing. Give it on a plate. This is the manner. It's almost like she was foreshadowing the queen in Alice of Wonderland. Off with his head. We're told in the text, and the king was sorry. And we would say to Herod Antipas, it's a little late for that. But because of his oath and his guests, he commanded to be given. The pressure is on him. This was a sinful oath. And the thing is, is that though Herod would claim some type of allegiance to Jew, Jewish culture and custom, had he actually paid heed to that culture and custom, he would know that according to the law, a sinful oath did not need to be carried out. That the law made provision for impulsive and impetuous oaths with the confession of the wrongdoing and offering of the proper sacrifice, he could be set free from this immoral oath. He would have realized it is never right to do wrong. And it is always wrong to promise to do wrong. But the pride of man is a strong and dangerous thing. The pride of man leads one to many foolish and difficult and dangerous decisions. So here was this would-be king who was still only a tetrarch, but who wanted the title. All the eyes of the party are upon him. He gives a boastful oath. What would he do? He could have done the right thing, but he loved the adoration and respect of men more than doing what is right. And the ironic thing is, is that in his effort not to appear weak before others, he actually shows what a weak and cowardly person he was. And so in this demented party, he then gives the devilish punishment. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. What a scene. Seems like such an act of courage and bravery and strong leadership when in fact it was actually the act of a coward. But we're told that under the order of Antipas, the soldiers go and carry out this dastardly deed, which once again was not legal under Jewish law for at least two reasons. First, Jewish law required a trial before there could be punishment. There was no trial here. There was just quick execution. Secondly, beheading was not even a Jewish form of punishment. But Herod doesn't care. As he shows all along in his life, he doesn't care what the traditions and customs of the Jews were. He only cares about power and pleasure. And I hope that we keep our wits about us and stay close to the Word of God. And when the Word of God says something, do this or don't do this, that we don't ever dare to handle the Word of God in such a cavalier manner as Herod Antipas. John is beheaded. His head is brought on a platter and given to the daughter. And with the swing of a sword, John was transported from the darkness of a prison cell to the delights of paradise. It's a reminder to us that if we stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ, we may fear how we will die, but we never need fear death itself. 
Now here's a fact that can encourage us. We had a memorial service here Friday afternoon of two beautiful saints that were longtime members of the church here. And here's a, a truth that can carry us day by day, perhaps even as the days get darker, and it is this. The believer never sees death. Oh, the body may expire, the last breath may go out, and the believer goes right into the glorious presence of God. That's why we can stand firm. We may not like the manner in which we could potentially die, but we need not fear death itself. And that's why we can be brave and bold and courageous in the midst of a wicked and perverted generation. As A.T. Robertson says, it cost John his head, but it is better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. Herod wanted to celebrate a birthday, and it ended up being the graduation day for John, who passed into the next life in the presence of the Lord. And man can't undo what God has promised. Oh, man may have removed the head from a physical body of John the Baptist, but you can be sure all the same that he was crowned with the, the crown of life when he entered into the presence of the Lord. This was an act of cowardice. It was also an act of cravenness. Think of Salome, 12-year-old girl, somehow manipulated to perform in unseemly manners in the, in the front of a group of drunken men. Hear this amazing request from her mother about the death of his enemy, then goes and gives the order and receives his severed head on a plate, freshly separated from his body, and brings it back into the room. Surely there was trauma here. And at the same time, there was ghoulish delight for Herodias. This delightful but evil glee that she would have had about what had happened. No longer would John speak against her and call her a sinner. No longer would he call into question her marriage to Antipas. She had taken care of him once and for all. Or had she? Because in a sense, John was still speaking. Because Herod was still bothered in his conscience about what he had done. And in some ways, John is still speaking. Because all who hear about the story today know exactly who did it. And why? John, uh, Herod was fearful and suspicious and paranoid and acted from that place. But what do we see from the standpoint of John the Baptist? Imprisoned for being a prophet, for speaking against wickedness in today's vernacular, for speaking truth to power, languishing in prison, wondering why he is there, and then suddenly taken out, taken out of a prison cell his life has ended. But if John were here today and could tell us the story, he would say it was worth it. He would say that standing on biblical principles and morality, it may be costly, but we're called to stand on biblical principles and morality all the same. John was telling the truth that the culture needed to hear, but the culture didn't want to hear it. That's why we need to continue to tell the truth today. Not in a audacious and pompous way, but with conviction and the calmness and the peace of the Spirit that says, I must tell you, you're on the wrong path. 
There's some absurdity in this story, isn't there? In one sense, John died because he was a prophet, because he spoke a prophetic message. But he'd been in prison for some time and hadn't lost his life. So in another sense, he died because a girl danced at a party before perverts. Where sin reigns and there's no fear of God, sinners are capable of the dumbest and most immoral of things. Doing what they want, with whom they want, when they want, acting more like animals than those created in the image of God. Herod played the game with religion, and it would cost him. It's a good lesson for us today. Let us not be among those, and let's not hang out with those who give their lives to being boastful and indulgent. But let us be those who are known as being citizens of the kingdom of heaven, who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, who proclaim the truth, even with tears in our eyes, to those around us who need to hear it. And now we get to the postlude. John disciples and Jesus. And we're told his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So John had his disciples, and they remained faithful to him in life and faithful to him in death, showing honor to him. And in fact, even today in the Middle East, there is still a group of people that refer to themselves as followers of John the Baptist. I wish they would listen to John the Baptist and take it all the way to Jesus. But at least they show what faithfulness looks like. But in any case, they come and take the body and they bury it. And this was an important detail because in Jewish custom, respect was to be shown to a body. Because body and the soul had been created by God. And in life and in death, we are to treat them with dignity and respect. And so they come and give him the proper burial. And then they go and tell Jesus. Not a bad piece of advice for us today. Whatever circumstances we have, however difficult they might be, whatever challenges we face, go and tell Jesus. And that's what they did. They went and informed him. So as we arrive at the end of verse 12, the flashback comes to an end, and we, we now see what has happened with little snippets, what's happened to John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of the Lord, the faithful servant of God, who announced that the kingdom of heaven had come, but even though he was faithful and spoke the truth and persevered, it did not spare him from trouble and difficulty. And if we've learned anything in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus reminds us again and again and again that persecution and trouble and trials and, and harmful things can and will come to followers of Jesus Christ. We will only be ultimately delivered from all evil in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. So the kingdom of heaven has come. It is here, but we've not yet seen it in its full manifestation that will only come when Jesus returns in power and great glory. And as we summarize what we've learned today and what we've learned looking at the life of John the Baptist, look at the parallels between John and Jesus. Both of them have unusual births. Of course, Jesus had a virgin birth, but John had a birth to a woman who was considered barren. Both of them announce the kingdom of heaven and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is among us. Both of them drew great crowds who wanted to come and hear their teaching. Both of them declared boldly the truth to powerful people. Both of them were wrongly accused and wrongly 
put to death, at least from a human standpoint. And so John, being a forerunner, in, in some ways was a, was a flashback, what we have in this passage this morning, but in some ways was a flash forward, showing, well, this happened to John, it surely is going to happen to Jesus. But because John knew who he was in Jesus, stood firm in Jesus, knowing that Jesus would eventually die on his behalf for his sins, for his eternal life, as we've already sung in one of the songs this morning. So I conclude with just a few questions as we look at this passage. Are we ready to be like John the Baptist? Ready to do what is right even when it is difficult? Because the temptation we're going to have is to be more like Herod, more concerned with how others see us than how we stand before God. Are we ready to tell the truth even if it costs us something, which it surely might? Or are we going to try to play the chess game and just sort of be obedient and sort of tell the truth and yet try to skirt whatever consequences that may come? In other words, are we willing to stand for righteousness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Or do we want to play hide and seek and do what we can and get by and try not to draw any attention and try to stay where we can? Here's the plea. Because it comes, I think, from a conclusion that we see so often in the scriptures. Far too often we fear men too much because we do not fear God enough. The first and greatest commandment is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as we fear God, we'll want to live for him because we love him, because it's worth living for him. John the Baptist said it was worth living for the Lord. It was worth dying for the Lord. And one day we're going to have the privilege of meeting him and get some more of the details and what happened to him and what a glorious reunion that's going to be. Well, next week we'll have a chance to look at one of the great miracles that Jesus performed that shows his messianic power, the feeding of the 5,000. But until that time, when we continue on in our study in Matthew 14, what are some lessons we can take today? Because John spoke the truth in a wicked age, guided by Jesus, we'll speak the truth in our own wicked age. Now, of course, that's truth with love, truth with compassion, truth with empathy, truth with a heart that breaks over the effects of sin and wants to bring people to the solution who is the Savior. Because John stood firm on the biblical teaching on marriage. As marriage is under attack today, we will do the same in our words and way of life today. Later on in the Gospel according to Matthew, we'll see Jesus affirming what God's plan for marriage is. But we see it indirectly in how John defends marriage in this story. Thirdly, because the believer will not see death, in his power we will boldly proclaim the truth as long as we have breath. Don't you want to use your life to invest it in that which will outlast you, that which will have an effect long after you're gone? That's why we're told in the Scriptures to teach these things to our children and our children's children, because that's the ultimate value in life, the kingdom of heaven and its truth. And lastly, because God made both the body and the soul, we will show respect to others both in life and in death, because we recognize that both are created by God, by, with design, with purpose, with value, with meaning. And we need to do the hard work of showing respect for people, body and soul, in life and in death.
as we take a few moments to think about this, let's quietly quiet our hearts before the Lord and just pray quietly, and then in a moment I'll close our time in public prayer. Father and our God, we thank you that you are holy, holy, holy. Father, we know that if it weren't for your mercy and your grace, we could not even stand in your presence. But Father, we also recognize that there's more work for you to do in our hearts and our minds and our wills and our emotions because we're not yet where we will be one day. And so, Father, as we contemplate your truth and your word, we repent from wrong attitudes that we've hung on to, from wrong emotions that we're allowing to direct our path, from wrong understandings about who you are, and just from our own cowardice. So we repent and say, Father, would you have mercy on us? And we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. But now would you gird us up by your spirit so that we might lovingly proclaim the truth to those around us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be so enamored by the beauty and the majesty and glory of Jesus that we would never fear to tell others about him. We would so desire to please you that we want to gladly share what we know with those around us. Father, thank you that you're gracious with us. Now lead us this week by your spirit to honor you and to glorify you well. And continue to teach us who you are through your word and for your glory. As we pray in Jesus' name.